Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 232 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. And Philip Morgan. Howdy. And I'm Ruben Lerner. And this week, we are doing Q&A. We are doing this live on Google Hangouts on Air. Or, for those of you who are not listening to on Google Hangouts on Air, wherever you happen to be. <laughs> Any time and place of your choosing, but without the live part. Jonathan, why don't you uh, give us the first question? Sure, there's some real doozies in here. For example, how does Donald Trump being the next president affect the freelance market? <laughs> um, my first how response to that have? is uh, health insurance, but I suppose we probably don't need to go into that one. Sounds like a landmine. Um, but I did see one that uh, caught my eye that I feel like I have a pretty good answer for, which is what are some ways I can protect myself from scope creep? What revisions are generally acceptable during an in-flight project? So I've got a very specific answer to this one, which is that at the beginning, before you start a project, before you even write your proposal, you need to have a why conversation with your prospect to determine why they want you to do the things that they've expressed that they want you to do and get down to some sort of goal for the project. And from that, define that goal and define ways to measure it in progress. So once the project is in flight and they come to you with some sort of request, you've got some context to sort of approve or reject the request. So if someone comes to you and says, hey, I'd like these buttons to be red instead of blue, you can say, great, how does that get us closer to our stated goal? And if they can make a case for that, then it's in your best interest to do it for them. And if they can't make a case for it, you say, that's an interesting suggestion. Let me put that on the list. I'll capture that for a possible phase two, but I consider it my responsibility to keep the project on track. And since this doesn't have any reasonable effect on the goal that we're trying to achieve, we'll just revisit it later. As you're doing the project and you get closer and closer to the stated goal, you'll find that the desire to change colors of buttons and make the logo bigger and things like that, they start to seem less important than they did at one time. So having a goal and a way to measure progress toward that goal during the project is the number one way to minimize scope creep. How does communication figure into that? I have a theory anyway that some clients get anxious when there's not communication and maybe they do stuff like that to just force communication. Totally agree. Yes, I think that there should be a lot of of communication during the typical software project. I mean, if it's a, a website or even a copywriting exercise, uh, especially if you're billing by the hour, because that creates a lot of anxiety on the client side. You know, what are you doing? Are you working at all? Are you working so much that I'm going to get a huge bill for this week? You know, so there's a, I think it's important to have very regular communications with the client. And, you know, whether that's design review or regular status updates, uh, the trick, though, is to not, during those reviews, to not let them tell you how to do your job or what to do. So if they say, hey, could you add this JavaScript snippet to every page on the marketing site? You say, sure. What does that do for us? And the client might say something like, uh, oh, well, that'll allow us to do segmentation or we can, we can track conversions based on region. You could say, oh, well, we've already got Google Analytics in there. It already does that. Is that sufficient? And the client says, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. I didn't realize it did that. And so what's really happening in a situation like that is the client is asking you to do a particular thing. So to execute a task without telling you why they want it done. The client doesn't want you specifically to put a snippet of JavaScript in 
the page, what they really want is a piece of business intelligence that allows them to make marketing decisions. And it's up to you to decide how to provide that. So whenever you get specific requests like, you know, make the logo bigger, make the buttons bigger, change the button colors, always just tie it back to some business case because they're an expert on their business. You are not. You're an expert at what you do. They are not. So you want input from both sides that is from their area of strength rather than an area of weakness like them telling you how to execute your job. But lots of communication, but it has to be a particular kind of communication where you're getting business, like a business case for every change they ask for, not just the change itself. So let me push back on that a little bit, not because I disagree, but because I was in a terrible situation about two years ago with a client. And granted, it was an hourly work. And basically, we had constant communication with them. And they kept saying, oh, and this, of course, is also included. And this, of course, is also included. And uh, the, the CTO who brought us in to do this, and he was also a consultant, he basically had to go to the board and say, listen, we did 70 things, seven zero things that were beyond the original scope. And that's why the budget was so much higher. And they basically came with a business claim for each and every one of them. They said, oh, you need to do this because it was, it was for uh, attorneys and it was like mm -hmm. doing online attorney stuff, like mm -hmm. finding clients and so forth. They were like, well, if we don't do this, then they can't get the contracts. And if we don't do this, and they had what I would consider to be legitimate business cases to it. Mm -hmm. But the tension was exactly what we've often described, which is we would say, okay, we'll do this. We didn't do it originally because you didn't tell us about it. And now that you're telling us, we'll have to charge you more for it. And there was a tremendous amount of stress and animosity because they were saying, well, it should have been included because you should have known. Right. Now, they were crazy. So, so I, I admit that. But, they, but they, what you're they saying us, is very common. They, they essentially came with a business case and they said, well, if you don't do this, then like, it's just not realistic. Right. Yeah. Like if you don't do this one thing that we didn't tell you to do at the beginning, the whole thing's worthless. Precisely. Yeah. So it happens all the time. And the problem is you're having a conversation at the wrong time. You need to have that conversation before. So if you say, you know, what's, what are the goals and then leave them out of, you know, and you, and you, you need to define that to your satisfaction. So they say, okay, here are the goals of the thing. And there'll be very high level. It's not going to be, you know, this feature, that feature, this feature, that feature, those, those, they might discuss those because they just happen to be aware of them, but there's gonna be a million things that they're not aware of. So you need to know what the ultimate goal is. So, okay, here's the ultimate goal. And while you're having that conversation with them, they're going to give you the kind of information you need to calculate a value. And then you can set a price below the value. And that price is going to be way more than what you probably would have charged hourly. It's probably what you end up charging them hourly. So a couple of things to keep in mind is, yes, the scope is not going to be perfectly defined on a feature by feature basis at the very beginning. But if you have defined an outcome with a very specific benefit or goal, you can probably charge enough money that you don't care that the scope is not well-defined. And everybody makes a, a, a buying decision or a financial decision about the relationship at the beginning before it's too late. You know, the, the analogy is you don't check the doneness of your cookies with the smoke detector, which is kind of what you're describing. <laughs> That's a great analogy. So, 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 so basically what, what should have happened, what should happen these sorts of things is, you know, we should have the conversation early on describing what's the value and the business value was like literally millions, right? Yeah. This was basically a, a network of attorneys all over a uh, country in Europe and, you know, hundreds of them. And this was worth literally millions, as I said. And so at that point, if we had charged them, I don't know, a hundred thousand, $200,000, mm -hmm. 
the value would have been clear and we would have said, oh, you want to add these fields? Whatever. We don't care. Right. We don't care because our effective hourly rate is still in the two or three, four hundred dollar range. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. Ruben, this sounds like the like a more waterfall type project. Was it? I mean, it, it sounds Emphasis like on the fall. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like they were developing a product, like a, a sort of a B to C product. Is that right? That's right. It was, it was a B2C product for people to do all sorts of legal stuff, sort of, you yeah. know, from your phone, or like basically filling out basic, basic stuff for selling a house or for, I think even divorce was one of the contracts they wanted people to have, right. where instead of going and visiting an attorney, so the idea was this would make it faster, easier, better, and so forth. And they kept discovering along the way, oh, we also need this for our attorneys to accept it. We also need that for clients to use it. And there was a huge amount of scope creep because they had not thought about it in advance and they figured, well, we'll just sort of throw it in because, you know, software, software is malleable and easy to do. Right. Yeah. Does that change anything, Jonathan, when you have that situation where it's this kind of greenfield thing, they don't really know the market yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would classify that as a startup, which is something I would avoid. Or if I was going to take it on for some reason, there's some compelling reason to do it. I would charge 100% upfront, I would set a value, a fixed fee upfront, and that would put a lot of risk on me. So I would try and minimize the scope and break it into phases where we do a phase one minimum viable product, and, you know, prioritize what we do know, to create the, you know, the minimum viable product first, because that'll decrease the risk for me. So I, I wouldn't want to go into a project like that and say, yeah, send me a quarter of a million dollars, and I'll let you know when I'm done. You know, well, you know, obviously, you'd have meetings and stuff. But the situation you're describing is kind of like the diners going into the kitchen and telling the chef how to make their meal. It's idiotic, you know, I, but w it, when you put it like that, the, the problem is everybody has an opinion and they feel like their opinion is valid. So without, you know, goals and metrics for measuring progress toward those goals in place ahead of time, you're just at the mercy of, you know, 25 opinions. Then that was another thing on this project, by the way, that, that doomed it in all sorts of ways. There was no shared sense of metrics or goals, and there were multiple people theoretically managing it, each of whom had a different set of goals. And so we were basically sort of ping-ponging around, well, you know, Joe says this, but Kim says that, uh, until sort of everyone was satisfied. So, right. right. Yeah, it's like, hey, write me a Facebook clone, or in this case, a legal Zoom clone. It's, I mean, it's a scare. It's a, got red flags all over it, but there are things you could do to kind of minimize the, the risk to you. Right. Right. Very interesting. Shall we tackle this question about the person who wants to only code and never doesn't want to have to deal with collecting payments and invoicing? <laughs> yeah, let's do that. I, I was going to say you could get a job because that's, yeah. that's exactly the job description is you, you know, aside from, you know, stuff that may feel like BS, like meetings, you code and, uh, you know, you get to do a lot of coding and you get to do a very minimal amount of the stuff that was called out here. I mean, the question said, what does a freelancer do to collect payments when they only want to code for a person who would rather, you know, program than send invoices or do client quote unquote stuff and having to do that feels like having a tooth extracted. What do you do? Well, get a job. <laughs> Really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I was going to say maybe so maybe you collect payment up front, but I I just don't know. There, uh, in my experience, ha a full half of any successful freelance business is stuff other than what you're selling your client. It's marketing. It's admin stuff. It's uh, 
trying to find affordable medical insurance or whatever, you know, it's stuff like that. You know, there are, look, uh, I think it's uh, Brennan Dunn who talks about staff augmentation, where a lot of freelancers say, you know, that's sort of what they think about in terms of contracting consulting. And that's, that was certainly my first thought, which is, oh, well, there's a company, they need some extra coders. I'll go in and be an extra, you know, set of hands and brains and I'll help them out and add to what they do. And instead of paying me as an employee, they'll pay me as a contractor and they'll pay me more because they don't have benefits, et cetera, et cetera. There are plenty of people who do that and they earn more than the average, you know, full-timer. And that might be a way to go about it because then you're signing a contract for three months, six months, 12 months, whatever it is. And the nature of the computer business is that you'll probably get a lot, you know, a, a lot of work. And then you don't have to worry about the marketing nearly as much. At the same time, you're probably not going to be making, in fact, I would say almost certainly not going to be making the sort of money that many consultants do make because you're doing the staff augmentation, you're not doing something that's super specific expertise that the company is desperate to have and that you can charge them extra for. Yeah, I, th I think that you make a good point. I mean, to me, the tone of the question was almost like, I can't be bothered to do that stuff. I'm so much more interested in doing my craft. And there'll always be some level of that, although, like you mentioned, Reuven, being a contractor is probably as close to this kind of, you know, Valhalla this person is trying to achieve. <laughs> what yeah, do you think, Jonathan? Through, I would go through an agency and just, mm -hmm. you know, if, if assuming the person doesn't want to get a full-time job, which evidently they don't or they feel like they can't because that's the obvious thing to do. The next thing to do is just go through a, an agency like, I don't know, Back in the day, the last time I ever did something like this, I went through an agency called The Creative Group, and they were basically sort of a combination headhunter, staff og thing. And they just called me up to say, hey, we got a gig for you. You want to drive up to, you know, Framingham every, every day. And that was really easy. And it had that kind of, you know, you just got there, did what you were told. And if you were hired as a coder, that's what you did. You know, but it comes with all the downsides of, you know, if they tell you to do something that you think is not the right way to do it, you don't really have any leverage to do it another way to deal with all the office politics and all the other stuff. I mean, but perhaps it's some kind of hybrid. But, you know, when I did that, I ended up hired full time as a W-2 employee at that company that I was that kept on contracting me. So it, and it was much better. And I don't even like those kinds of jobs. It was still better than the agency model. So, you know, you got to ask yourself not everybody's cut out for full-time job at an enterprise business and not everybody's cut out to consult or freelance. So if you want to freelance or turn yourself into a freelancer or a consultant and really build a business, you have to think like a business person, not like a coder. And to do that on a long-term basis, it's going to, it's a relationship business. It's not a, it's not about the code at all. Like you might enjoy the code. That's great, but you need to please the clients and you're not going to do that by being a code monkey in your basement. It's just not going to happen. You need to have lots of communications. You need to push back. There's like awkward situations that you have to deal with constantly. But if you're good at that, you're handsomely rewarded. If it, you're not cut out for that, that's totally fine. Maybe you will be later or maybe you just won't. Maybe it's no big deal. So get a job, go through an agency. I wonder if the person asking the question was wondering how to like magically outsource some of these things. And it's hard to imagine doing that in a way that made financial sense guessing at how much someone with that mindset would be making financially. So yes, you can outsource things like your bookkeeping and invoicing and 
medical and legal and dealing with all that stuff. But, you know, at that point, why not just get a job financially? Because you'll be paying so many people to do all the, you know, things that you should be doing. It's tough to make a case for it. So I actually like by Israeli law, every corporation needs to have an accountant. And so I have an accountant because I have a company. And that means I have a bookkeeper there. So basically every month I bring her a pile of papers and I say, here, like enjoy. And she then basically, I would go so far as to say in some ways is like the CFO of my company because she goes through everything, certainly the bookkeeper, like, and she goes through everything. She says, you forgot to invoice these people, or you forgot to do a receipt for these people. And I would say it's definitely the least fun thing that I do each month. And it's the thing that I put off. And it's the thing that I'm bad at but it's got to get done. I sort of justified by saying this is the most profitable part of the month because you know during this hour, I'm going to be making all the money that I've hopefully been bringing in the rest of the month. And I would definitely say like, I know this is going to sound very quaint. When I moved from paper invoices to doing it online a few years ago, oh my God, like it's so much easier now. I just say this client, this amount of money, click, and it's emailed off to them. So invoicing should not be a problem anymore for most people. Uh, or even doing receipts too much. And your banking is online. I, I would say it, it sounds to me like the, I mean, for the question it says, with a, for a person with a programming mindset, sending invoices and doing client stuff is having a tooth, like having a tooth extracted. I would say the sending invoices probably not, but as Jonathan and Philip said, like it's a relationship business and the client stuff, that's also where you're going to be making your money both now and in the future. By the way, I mean, I just want to also add, it's okay not to be a freelancer. Right. Like, I mean, I, I love what I do. I think you, you guys love what you do. And I certainly encourage other people to try it and explore it. But like, if it's not for you, you shouldn't feel like you're a failure in the job market in the slightest. You know, there's something to be said for having, you know, a job you go to nine to five and come home and, you know, don't have to think about work for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you could have some sort of side hustle going, some sort of info practice, there's a million things you could do to augment your income and still have, have like that creative out let where you're in complete control but you know betting your whole lifestyle or livelihood on your ability to do sales for example it's a risky proposition it's not for everyone and i agree with ruben it's, it's just not for everyone so you shouldn't feel bad about it if you if it feels like having a tooth extracted i've got another one if we're ready to move on this one looked good what would you consider to be the most important first step to launching a successful career as a freelance web developer Philip, what do you think? <laughs> well, I, I wish I had the admire those podcast hosts who are like, we cover that in show 78. <laughs> uh, we have covered that before. So, but let's recap, right? Because we're not here to dodge the question. But just know that if you search the, uh, search the sort of back catalog of shows, you'll find some of those where we spend a lot of time talking about like how you get started. I am in the middle of doing a positioning workshop and preparing my lecture for the last, the fourth uh, and final meeting of that workshop. And this topic came up, so it's, it's very top of mind for me. Generally, you've got to have a couple things you need to have. I think you need to have a clear definition of like who would be a good client for you. And if the best you can do is somebody who needs a website, that's not good enough. <laughs> Add one one level to that, which is, a market vertical focus, somebody who is a dentist who needs a website, somebody who is a small manufacturing company who needs a website. Even if your connection to that market vertical is tenuous at best, it will be better than saying, I'm a web developer, I'm a Rails developer, I'm a whatever. It's better if your skill adds disproportionate value 
So if you focus in some software development uh, language that is good for rapid prototyping, probably don't focus on the enterprise. Focus on people who need, you know, rapid prototyping. If your software development skill is great for ultra-reliable enterprise apps, then probably focus on the enterprise. Anyway, you need that. I think you don't need much in terms of a, of a web presence. I think that people kind of overdo it when it comes to a web presence. I think that having, I mean, Jonathan, I think mentioned uh, about.me, that's probably enough for, for a lot of people who are just starting out. Some way to say, I do this, I do it for this target market. Any kind of proof that you can get that you are, which I know when you're starting out is hard, and we've talked about this before on this show, it's hard to get the proof. But if you can have a previous uh, supervisor, you know, say that you're reliable, if you can have a college professor say that you are did really well in your CS classes, whatever it is, find some form of proof, somebody who will vouch for you and put that on your website. And I would say build a list, but for people who are just starting out, that's probably not the right thing. Those are some of the things to think about. I mean, that's enough like homework for the average person just starting out. Don't get seduced by like the idea of automating your client onboarding if you're just starting out. <laughs> that that provides value when you have a ton of leads coming in, but not when you're lucky to get two good leads a month coming in. So I don't know. Those are some thoughts, kind of some scattershot, I guess. What do you guys think? Yeah, number one thing for me is some kind of market focus, some kind of positioning. Know what you do and who you do it for. Even though you could do a million things, because if you're a you know full stack web developer, you could pretty much do you know any. There's so many tasks you could do and so many people you could do it for. It and picking one doesn't change that, but it does dramatically help with your marketing, which is probably something you're not really excited about doing. So to make it more effective is a great thing. Don't obsess over your website. You know, as Philip said, it's a huge time suck. And you know, you know, if you think about it, you're not going to get it perfect. And all of a sudden the leads are going to start pouring in. You know it, just think about it. It's not, it's not going to happen like that. I wouldn't even blog. Like it's, you know, that's the kind of thing that you do to attract. That's very long tail, which is not what you need when you're starting out. So define your positioning. Don't worry about your website, but you have to have some kind of web presence so people can click through and read about you a little bit and then do direct outreach, uh, network through your contacts say hey i do this for these people do you know anybody who is this or needs this and you know speak if you're the type of person who can get up in front of a room to speak then do it go to meetups and whatever conferences whatever you can do to get yourself in front of people as an expert at a particular thing for a particular group of people and you'll find that the the word of mouth is just it's like magic almost so, I mean, that's what I would do if somebody was like, hey, my son's graduated in college. And he doesn't know what to do. What advice would you give him? That's what I would say. I was going to just add on to that. Like, let's say you said, so you, you do web development, you pick cosmetic dentists. And if you can find some way to attend like a meetup for cosmetic dentists and you just show up and you're like, I'm a web developer and I focus on building websites for you people. They will like lift you up on a chair and carry you through the room because they never get that. They never get someone who's like a technical expert who's focused like that at your level, at the solo freelancer level, it's quite rare. So that and uh, yeah, I was going to say even like looking through job boards and stuff for things that match your focus or signing up for like a, a lead service, like let's workshop or there's others like that. 
I was just going to add on. Those are also specific things you could do. Look, it's funny, like that, back when I started to be a freelance web developer, you know, in 1995, that was a niche, right? Because like web was this new weird thing. And now, as you guys said, like the web is just everywhere. Like everyone and their dog has at least like two websites. So finding some sort of market where you can sound like you really know them and you understand them, they're definitely going to love you for it. And it doesn't have to be a huge market. It just has to be one, like how many clients can you really service? And some of these people might be able to come up with tasks that could take you two, three months. And if they love you to do a great job, then of course, you know, testimonials and friends and colleagues and so forth. The idea of going to some of these like meetings for non-techies, I think is brilliant. But even go to the meetings for techies, like the meetups for these things, because there are always people looking for help, looking for jobs. You know, worst case scenario, you can, you know, find a startup that could use some help in one of their web development projects, get to know their domain, get to know their technologies. And then, you know, you become more of an expert. And, and the word spreads. People in high tech switch jobs so often. If they know of someone good, they will recommend them ad infinitum to all sorts of connections. I actually like, I've been, I mean, I've been writing for Linux Journal every month for 20 years. And I can count the number. Of, so that's like, that counts sort of like as a blog. I can count the number of jobs I've gotten from that on the fingers of one hand, maybe half a hand, right? So it's not quite the same as blogging, I admit, but I was expecting when I started the column, oh, I'm going to have so many calls from people saying, well, you're a columnist, clearly I'll hire you. No, no, it just doesn't happen. And I think blogging is similar. So blogging maybe get your name out, but don't, yeah, don't plan to get a lot of work that way. Besides, probably the people who pay the money are not going to be reading your blog. It'll be the people who, who, who are going to learn from you and then use your techniques so you don't have to be hired. This is like a related question here, I think, if we're ready to move on. <laughs> I'm learning front-end web dev on my own, and a difficult choice I have to deal with is the programming languages slash libraries slash frameworks I need to learn. What skills are useful, valuable, and important in order to get started with freelancing? talking to clients. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I feel this, I feel this person's pain though, because they have to pick something and it feels like a big deal, but really it's not. So, you know, if let's say front end web dev, okay. So we're talking about a web developer and if you're really just starting out and you don't know what to choose, I would usually recommend that people just pick this, the things that are most flexible, the tools that are most flexible and broadly applicable in preparation for narrowing your focus down to a particular target market for whom you can do pretty much anything with the tools that you have. So like Rails, I know this is a front-end web dev, but Rails, if I was starting over today, Rails is the first thing I'd learn. Not Node, not Django, it, you know, not to, not to tick people off. Uh, those are good things. Those are great things, actually. But if I was just starting out, I would pick the de facto standard, which in my opinion is Rails. From a front-end standpoint, if you're super, super front-end, I would say React or Angular or Ember. Personal favorite is React, but I don't think it matters. I think if you're going to build things that need to be built with tools like that, I think any one of those three are perfectly fine. It doesn't really matter that much is what I'm saying. So, so just pick like a de facto standard and go to town, you know? with marketing to a particular audience as we've already started discussing. Uh, so don't get hung up on it. It's not, and don't try to learn all of them. That's a mistake too. It's just a waste of time. 
pick one that feels like it's got the longest lifespan and stick with it. You know, whether it's rails or bootstrap or whatever, just don't, don't get too hung up on it because they're constantly changing. Right. Especially like front end is crazy with like the speed with which these things change and go in and out of style. I mean, the sort of 900 pound gorilla, it would seem to me as someone who doesn't do that much front end stuff right now is uh, angular. And so I have this friend and colleague who does Ember and I'm always asking him, you know, like, is there really that much work for Ember? Because Angular is just everywhere. He's like, of course, there's plenty of work, right? It might be a smaller number of clients, but that doesn't mean zero. On the contrary, there are plenty. And there are proportionally fewer people using it, which means you can still get work. And the other thing is, I feel like, I mean, just as when you learn another one foreign language, it helps you learn another foreign language. If you learn one of these development libraries, you will want to learn another one. And it'll be easier because you'll get sort of the analogies and there'll be plenty of blog posts saying Ember for Angular people or React for Angular people and so on and yeah. so forth. I feel like implied in the question is that the person's going to advertise themselves as an expert with this thing or familiar with this uh, thing. I, I don't think that's important. So it's much more important to say that you can achieve some outcome for a particular type of market. And if you happen to use Ember or Angular or React, no one cares. Not no one. Some people do care, but they're mostly your peers. Your customers or your prospects don't care. Right. You know, okay, now I'm going to make my own exceptions. If you're pitching your services to startups for staff augmentation, they will care because they want to tell you what to do. And they're going to make all of these choices in advance of you showing up on the scene. So if you're, if you're planning to do staff augmentation, then it can matter more because, you know, if you look at the job postings that, that people will put up, they'll say, oh, looking for, you know, looking for a React expert with 10 years of experience, which is a joke, of course, because it's only been around for a few years. But <laughs> you, see, you see these posts that, you know, every time a new thing comes out, they want somebody with experience at this thing that just came out. It's like no one has experience. So what I'm saying is perhaps these decisions will limit your job prospects if you're looking for a kind of work where they are going to define the stack that you're working with. In which case, being a JavaScript expert is a good thing, or or even any of the popular frameworks like React or Knockout, or oh, actually not Knockout. I don't think that's a sorry Knockout fans. Uh, not, <laughs> not a fan of Knockout, but Ember, Angular, React. You really can't go wrong with those. There's going to be plenty of people looking, you know, startup type people looking for staff augmentation with these sorts of things. And starting out, staff aug is a fine way to keep the lights on, get some cash flow going. But beyond that when you start going directly to clients who are actual businesses, not startups, which I don't consider actual businesses yet, they're like fledgling possible businesses. No one's going to care what your, what tools you use to achieve their goals. They're just going to want their goals achieved. Like if you hired someone to put an addition on your house, you don't care what brand of table saw they use. It's irrelevant. Although they will sometimes in my experience, ask you what you're doing, not necessarily to control it, but, they're worried sort of down the line, are they going to be able to easily find people to maintain it? Yeah, that's, right? why, I said so, pick, that's why I said pick broadly general. You know? There you go. There you go. Right. Yeah, like if you can't find a Rails developer, there's been a nuclear war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From a marketing perspective, how you differentiate yourself is kind of what this question is getting at. And, you know, differentiating yourself based on the tech stack you use is usually a bad choice unless you're hooking into an ecosystem that's very strong on its own. Like I'm going to be a, uh, you know, a sales, Salesforce uh, consultant or like one of the big ERP systems like uh, SAP, right? Like then, then you're hooking into an ecosystem 
And you may differentiate yourself based on your depth of knowledge about that ecosystem, but that's not so much true for stuff like I'm a PostgreSQL expert or I'm a Rails expert. I think part of this, unfortunately, comes from the way that HR departments advertise job positions. They're, I think they're looking for, give me something binary. Yes or no, do you have the 10 years of experience? Yes or no, do you have you know, experience with programming language X? And the closer you get to that end of the spectrum, like, you know, like Jonathan was saying, staff aug or contract work, they're absolutely going to be thinking in those terms because that's kind of driven by HR. But when you get closer to a business decision maker, which is usually not HR, is, is, making the, is influencing the hiring process, then you need to be speaking more in terms of outcomes and results you can create or problems you can solve. And the choice of technology is, it is consequential. And as technicians, you're very concerned about, you know, the intricate details of that. But the business people are just like, what's the ROI? And can I call somebody if you get hit by a bus? And, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And that really rails and those really established kind of big players really pass that test well. All right, let's take a break and earn a little money for the show by talking about Hired.com. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. They put you in control, fill out an application, and then top employers apply to hire you. Throughout the process, your dedicated talent advocate will also have your back, providing unbiased career coaching to help you put your best foot forward with potential employers. And Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And they help people find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. So if you're open to relocation, you can let them know and they'll work that in too. Finally, if you use our link, you can earn double the normal hiring bonus. The normal hiring bonus is a thousand bucks and they give you 2000 instead. So go check them out at hire.com slash freelancer show. What about that question about projects looking intimidating on freelancing websites? Uh, yeah, so I was just looking at that. It's a good one. What do you think it means? Like before we get into the question, like how did you take that? I take this as someone who's newer to freelancing, who has less experience looking at these and really actually at what, thinking a job about posting? the risk. Oh, like I'm thinking like Upwork or, uh, okay. I mean, if, yeah, I'm thinking. So, it. so there, there I see like, if it, something looks intimidating, it's either because it's like, you know, laughably large, build me an eBay, you have one week, <laughs> or, or intimidating because it's like, has so many pieces to it. I don't, I don't know. I, I've never seen anything there that seemed intimidating if it was actually sort of spec'd out in a real way. So it seems intimidating more yeah. business-wise than technical-wise. Uh, you just said spec'd out in a particular way. I, I was going to say, it feels intimidating when you look at a request that's very poorly defined, but written in a way that implies that you should understand what it means. That's a risk mitigation strategy that someone who's either been burned by freelancers in the past or is sort of overly cautious is going to do. They're going to say, they're going to try to put all the risk on you, on the freelancer. Hmm. Sorry to yes. interrupt, but... Just, no, that's, yeah, that's, that's exactly where my head was at. It's like, I, I don't go to sites like that and I never really did. So, but, but I do get this thing sometimes where people will call me up and they'll say, you know, they'll express some desire and I have no idea what they're talking about. And then they'll like 
how long do you think that might take and what's a ballpark price? And there's some human thing that, especially when you're newer, that makes you not want to say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, you know, to admit that you don't have all the answers when no one would have the answers because what they just said was nonsensical. So a lot of times I think the way that it happens is that the, the customer thinks they understand our jargon and they use it in a way that's convincing enough that they know what they're talking about, but they don't use it well enough to actually communicate meaningful information. So you're like, I don't want to look like an idiot here and ask what they're talking about. Like I understand all the terms, but they jumbled them together in a way that doesn't make sense. So I, I can imagine the similar sort of thing happens in a job posting. I mean, the, my initial reaction to that question was ask more questions. So if you see something that's intimidating, ask more questions until it's not intimidating or you're positive that you can't do it. So that's, I mean, it's sort of a long preamble to that, but it's really like, I think a lot of times it's a question of uncertainty. I think Philip mentioned risk mitigation. It's like you're uncertain about whether or not you can do it. It could be because you're uncertain about what they want done. So if you say, okay, what exactly do you want done? And ask some probing questions about why they want it done and sort of get at the root cause, you know, the root cause for them to have made that posting in the first place, you'll know instead of having that sense of anxiety, you'll either know you can do it or you can't or at least you'll increase the likelihood of being on one side or the other of that question and move away from that sort of uncertain pinnacle at the center where it seems like a good gig, but I'm not really sure. Uh, so I guess the answer is, or my suggestion would be to ask some, some probing questions. Yeah, I agree. And, and realize that the deck is a little bit stacked against you, meaning there will be plenty of people who will say, I can do that the cost to you is $27 an hour and I can begin next week. And for a lot of clients who show up on places like Upwork, they're going to respond to that. It's a honeypot. It's terrible. It, end, it always ends up terribly when that's how the relationship begins, but some clients will respond to that. And you don't want those clients anyway, but it can be dispiriting to feel like you're losing out because you're doing it the right way, which is to, to do what Jonathan said and, and ask the right kind of questions. I did use uh, Upwork back when it was Elance a uh, fair amount a number of years ago. And it took me a long time to realize, first of all, that the amount of time I was spending, because I kept saying, oh, well, I've gotten a few clients from them. Yes, I did. But if I balance the number of clients, the amount they paid, actually, I got two very long-term clients from there. But I think that was an exception, right? But the amount of time I spent there looking for clients and looking for work and trying to figure out was huge. And at a certain point, it became very frustrating to me that I was indeed being underbid by people who knew nothing and were charging nothing. And so I couldn't sort of get myself in. So I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to look like, you know, the smart, useful, great uh, consultant. And so I would put in a, like a placeholder bid, something like that, whatever they called it. I'd say, I'd love to talk to you about this. Let me learn more about your business and what you're interested in doing. And what I discovered was that 90% of them were totally not interested in this. Like what Phil said is 100% right, which is if they don't see a dollar figure and they don't see like a single digit dollar figure per hour, then they're not interested. And the few I would actually talk to, they, we would have a great conversation. And then they'd say, yeah, but you're way too expensive. So I would say the intimidating part on that sort of job site is just like, there's a lot of junk there 
And it's maybe not a bad place to like start very, very, very early, but I think you would be better off like looking elsewhere, even at sort of like some higher quality job sites where they tend to spec things out more, where it's acceptable to charge more and, you know, try. And by the way, even nowadays, I'll teach courses in some, in many cases, not many, not many, like some cases where it's intimidating and I'm not hundred percent sure I know what I'm doing. And the way I get better is by jumping in and I prepare a lot and I hope it goes well. And the next time around I do it better. So if it's intimidating, that's natural and that's normal. And that will hopefully never change, but your confidence in being able to handle these intimidating things will. It's funny that you bring up the intimidation in the training scenario, because when I, before I give a workshop or even a talk, if I'm feeling intimidated, well, I do this every time I send out a questionnaire for the attendees mm -hmm. in advance. If it's, it's usually a known set of people. And my anxiety level goes down dramatically once I start getting answers back. If, <laughs> if no one answers any of the questions, then my anxiety is at the maximum, which is funny because that's the same answer I gave for the job board posting, which is you need to ask more questions. You know, it's like you need to get a sense of the, in the, in the case of the training or workshop, I need to get a sense of where everyone's at. Because until I know that, they could be the global experts in my field, in which case I'd be very nervous. You know, I would go over every word with a fine tooth comb. But if it turns out that it's a, a you know, a bunch of technophobes who are trying to get their heads around mobile and they don't even have smartphones, I, I know exactly how to talk to those people. So, but I don't know that until I get some questionnaires back. So, yeah. Oh, look, we're talking about communication again. <laughs> Right, right. It's like, uh, the question, question is, so I've sometimes done that now with my, my courses where I'll send out a questionnaire, especially the advanced courses, because advanced courses just in my experience are fraught with danger because everyone has a different description of what advanced means. And so like to my advanced Python class, I will get people who use it every day for three years and are really experts. And the people who took my intro class five years ago haven't touched it since. And so that can be frustrating, and especially then, like, so, so by sending the questionnaire, I can get a better sense of who's coming. And so I'm doing actually another advanced class next week. And the sort of previous version of this that I did two months ago, I was really nervous because I was sure these people know their stuff and everything. And I got these questionnaires back. I was like, oh, it's not going to be a problem. Like, it's an advanced class, but it doesn't mean they're all advanced. And so I calmed down a lot. I taught what I was sort of hoping to be able to teach, and they, they were happy. So I agree that having that information is, is uh, very useful and puts me at ease more. Sure. Yeah. Like if you get, if you get questions back that indicate, so for me, it's like, I get the questionnaires back and I'm like, oh, I can definitely help these people as opposed to, <laughs> you know, as opposed to getting a bunch of questionnaires back where I'm like, I don't know if I can help these people. Like, I'm not going to tell them anything they don't already know. I'm not sure if I can help them. That's a, a much more, it's, that's creates anxiety because I'm like, they sent me a lot of money already. And I, I don't want them to be like, this guy just told us what we already read on his website or, or whatever. So yeah, I was just making a subtle a, additional distinction or nuance about the thing that makes me feel confident is that I can help them. Like the, the answers to the questions make me confident that I can definitely help these people. And you get, a, I get a ton of, you know, just confidence. I get much more excited and energized and it makes it more efficient because you can focus the content at a level that is appropriate and not be going over people's heads or telling them things they already know. And it's the same with a project. You know, sometimes you'll get people that are super opinionated about like what stack they want to use for some reason. And, you know, 
they might be. I can I can think of one client who fancied himself as being very up to date on like the nuances of HTML5 and you know all the changes that it was enabling and all of these things. And he, every time we talked, he wanted to he always wanted to have a little sidebar conversation about oh what's new in HTML5 and how good it. He just hit me with these random questions. This is a pure business person, right? And he hit me with random questions like, "How's support for WebRTC cross browser?" You know. And so I'd always have to be kind of prepared for for like some random question about like the latest news that made it into business publications like Financial Times, the New York Times, like talking about, you know, Apple's new approval policy for iOS apps or something. But anyway, tangent. Yeah, I can just echo that, especially when you're newer. I think that there's this kind of weird cognitive distortion that happens where you feel like you need to sort of conceal your your newness and the way to do that is by saying yeah 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 let's sounds good and you just kind of rush through the discovery process or the in medical terms it would be the diagnosis process right and that's just so fatal <laughs> in every yeah. way so it's yeah, i mean that's like one kind of meta soft skill that i think is directly correlated to revenue or at least reduced pain as a new freelancer is like being willing to really dig in and ask questions. And even if it feels uncomfortable, it did for me at first. And I, I can directly, I can see so clearly how that held me back. So I just want to add, add on that. I think it's not uncommon. I'm not exactly sure why, but it's kind of embarrassing to ask these questions at first, or you feel like you're intruding or imposing or something and you're not, you're just, you're doing exactly what you should be doing to make the project successful. Yeah, it's that same feeling you get when a client uses a vocabulary word that you don't understand. And you really need to ask them, you're like, wait, what does that mean? Like, I remember, I, I, I'm going to embarrass myself now. I was in a conversation one time with a client and the person was very, for lack of a better description, just very professional, very sort of Harvard educated, you know, like really clear it just, he just felt really smart and a little bit impatient. And he used the word fungible. And I did not know what that meant. Like I've heard the word before and I know it means either what it means or it's opposite. And I wasn't sure which one it was. And it was really important, you know, kind of like flammable, inflammable. And I was like, sorry, what does fungible mean? You know, and it was like, I was petrified to ask that question, but I just blurted it out. And I've been there. I can think of other, you know, I know I've been in situations like that in the past. And I have literally never regretted blurting out the question. And I have always regretted when I didn't ask the question. It's the exact same thing. Like you, if you are not sure what the person is trying to communicate to you, you owe it to them and to the success of the project or whatever the undertaking is to stop them and say, I did not understand what you just communicated to me. Can you clarify? You have to. If you don't do it, you're going to find out eventually. <laughs> And by the time you find out, it's going to be bad. And I think they'll respect you. I mean, my experience is, first of all, I think they respect you way more for showing an interest and asking questions. And sometimes they'll say, look, I, I hate to ask this basic question, but, and if it's often about their business, I, they're happy that I want to learn about their processes and their business. The other thing is, like, my style is to ask a lot of questions. And if they really hate that, then we should get that out of the way real fast because they're, they're going to hate working with me. Yeah, plus one there. There was a movie, I, I think it was Philadelphia, and there's this scene where Denzel Washington is a lawyer, 
And he has this verbal tick kind of thing, or he's got this technique that he uses where somebody comes in and he says, explain it to me like I'm a six-year-old. I, I think that's the movie. I think that's the actor. But the one thing I remember for sure is the line, explain it to me like I'm a six-year-old. And I've used that so many times to be like, you know, to make, because the thing is, they don't want to talk down to you either, but the stuff is so obvious to them that they feel like they are talking down to you when they're explaining basic things about their business. So you, I feel like you kind of remove that sort of uncomfortableness by saying, just explain it to me like I'm a six-year-old. This is brand new to me. I don't know anything about this. And I need to understand some of these fundamental, like I need to understand these things at a fundamental level. Not maybe so much detail, but just the big picture stuff. And they can do it every time. I think that the point I'm bringing up there is I think certainly you should do it. It's critical that you do. And it can help to sort of give the, the speaker kind of cut them some slack too, because it's uncomfortable on their end as well. That's great. There's one about, can we talk about what it's like to be an expatriate? Because I think someone's freaking out about the change in, uh, you know, presidency here in the States. I think that'd be a good one to bring a guest on. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I can speak to that from experience, which is, I mean, I assume this person is American and they're looking to work outside of the U.S., potentially with U.S. companies. So, so first of all, the first thing to realize is as a U.S. citizen, and I'm a U.S. citizen, like I was born and raised in the U.S. I moved to Israel when I was 25. So as a U.S. citizen, you owe taxes to the U.S. every year. Or at least I should say you owe, you have to fill out an IRS form and like uh, file your income taxes with the U.S. every year. So the fact that you're not living in the U.S., this is, by the way, the U.S. is apparently unique among countries in this way. If you're not living in England, you don't owe taxes in England and you don't have to tell them anything, which is apparently a whole field day for tax you know, evasion. In any event, so you will need to do that. And every country then has its own way of dealing with it with the U.S. So Israel, for example, has a tax treaty with the U.S. where any tax I pay to Israel counts as tax I paid to the U.S., Meaning that when I fill out the form for the IRS, I say, oh, I paid, you know, X to Israel. And they're like, oh, well, that's more than we would have charged you, which is true. So, like, you don't owe us anything. So it's very important then to find out where you are going, what the rules are for where you are for dealing with that sort of tax stuff. Also for, like, incorporating all that sort of thing. Other than that, though, it's pretty smooth, except for one thing. Uh, I mean, you're saying here that, like, Canada has an entrepreneur visa. So Canada to the U.S. is not as big a deal. But I have definitely found that when speaking to potential clients, and I say them, I'm American, I have you know, fluent English, U.S. citizenship, all that business, the fact that I'm outside the borders of the U.S. has definitely been a turnoff to some people. And so you should recognize that there will definitely be some people who just don't want to work with you because you're not local. And by local, if you were in New York and they're in California, they would not care. But the fact that you know, you're in Toronto and they're in California, oh my God, or let alone London, that, that, that's a deal breaker. So you should just sort of recognize that, but it's, it's totally worth it. And we can, we can, I think doing a show on that might be uh, very useful actually. Yeah. Sure. We are listeners from all over the place. I'm actually curious about just intellectually curious, not for my business per se, but about how exchange rates work and how you, like how you take payment. You know, you, you know someone who lives in a U.S. citizen living in Israel, working in China, like how does that work? So, so first of all, Israel had uh, very bad inflation for many years. And so it was, when I moved to Israel in 95, pretty standard for people to quote prices in dollars for all sorts of things. And then like you would pay at the shekel rate, shekel is the Israeli currency for that day. So if you had to pay rent, your rent would be like you know, $200 a month, the shekel rate that day. And a lot of professionals did it too. 
And at some point, probably about 15 years ago, people realized, wait, the Israeli economy is actually okay. The shekel is pretty stable. And this is stupid. And I think there was some legislation as well. And so now everyone basically just bills in shekels, which means that I have to have invoicing software that handles both currencies. So I sometimes, I bill my American clients in dollars. I bill my Israeli clients in shekels. And the exchange rate is often terrible. So like if I get paid by PayPal, PayPal uh, doesn't charge, like they charge me a terrible exchange rate. It goes to my bank, they charge me a slightly less terrible exchange rate. So you sort of play games with who's going to do it and where, where the, like, the fees are, are bad and less bad. When I go to China, I actually negotiate my prices with them in either dollars or shekels, and they deal with the conversion on their end. So and even when I go to Europe, I actually charge them in dollars, even though I probably could or should charge them in euros. But I'm dealing there with a multinational corporation, so like they could not care less. I could charge them in basically any currency I want, and they can probably deal with it. But you do sort of like everyone in the U.S. has like a checking account and a savings account, and you know, so I have a shekel account and a dollar account, and you just sort of have to keep track of those. And oh, look, I forgot to change these thousand shekels. And there are people who will then play games with it, saying, "Well, I bet it's going to go up, or I bet it's going to go down." And the word bet there is important <laughs> in that sentence because half the time you'll make something, half the time you'll lose something. And typically people like us are dealing with such small quantities that you know, you'll make a few tens of dollars or lose a few tens of dollars. It's just not, not worth getting worried about. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like a nightmare for that person who was saying we wanted to code all the time and not have to <laughs> invoice. That sounds like triple the uh, overhead. <laughs> so right. So invoicing software, actually, um, you have to, by Israeli law, use something that's been like approved by the justice ministry, because then like it's doing legal invoices and so forth. And so the software that I use, when I invoice someone in dollars, it actually records how many shekels that would be. And when I get the, the deposit from them in dollars, it sort of says, oh, well, we'll understand, like you build them this day and you got it that day. And the difference is, okay. And truth be told, some of that, I realize I'm hand-waving, and that's okay, because that's why I have an accountant. <laughs> I'm just doing what they told me to do. <laughs> if I was going to recommend, not that we're talking about this, but if I was going to recommend outsourcing anything to anyone, it would be an accountant. Like, any part of your business that you don't want to do, even if you do want to do it, you should probably outsource that piece. Yeah, absolutely. Words of the wise. So we're going to wrap up. Thanks, to everyone, for listening. Well, Jonathan, thanks as always. And uh, we will see you folks next week on The Freelancer Show and next month at our Q&A. Send us questions and uh, we'll be happy to answer them either live or recorded. Bye, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.